The following is a presentation of the Retro Network. Two men with identities forged in the white-hot fires of the 90s comic book boom. Now ready to re-examine the era where heroes became extreme and what magazine gave rise to a market of speculation. If you've got the guts, prepare to enter the world of Wizards, the podcast guide to comics. Greetings, geeks, and welcome to episode 18 of Wizards, the podcast guide to comics, the bi-weekly show where we re-examine the 90s comic book boom through the pages of Wizard Magazine. Wondering if Darkhawk looked uglier than Spawn's hamburger face under his helmet, I'm Adam. And finally, free from that Baxter building with a newfound appreciation for the greatest hero of all comics history, the Human Torch. I'm Michael. It's great to have you back, man. You and Johnny Storm are buddies now? Yeah, yeah. Uh, Johnny's an icon who deserves all of our respect. Flame on is the coolest catchphrase ever. <laughs> I can't even put it to words, man. I, I can't. Yeah, it, it's okay, pal. It's a, let's talk about some 90s comics and uh, we'll chase the, the bad thoughts away. What do you say? Flame on, right? Oh, boy. All right. <laughs> but uh, speaking of the Baxter building and the Fantastic Four, a hero who spun from the pages of that comic recently became a record-breaking star of cinema and meant a lot to many people the world over. And we have some news that we'd like to address that just came out prior to this recording. So... Sadly, we have to report that uh, Chadwick Boseman passed away literally in the last, you know, couple of hours due to a battle with cancer that no one, that none of the fans or the industry was talking about or knew about. And it's so tragic. It's like I can't even fully put into words like how I'm feeling about this right now and that movie and his acting and he's played so many major major figures in history as well as in comics and it's it's a loss not just for the hollywood industry but just you know the world because he had a lasting impact in a relatively small amount of time yeah and i'll be honest he felt to me like the christopher reeve of the 21st century you know i i would even more like one of my favorite actors of all time is Sidney pontier and he's that kind of caliber actor where whenever he was on screen he just had this presence about him that transcended just the character or the story and it's just eerie and it's it's sad and it was only 43 years old like oh man that's such i i again i feel so sorry for his family and you know the world is going to be a little bit more heartbroken in in a year of heartbreaks yeah i mean it's it's just another punch in the gut but all the best to his family and, and his fans and everybody else out there because yeah that's that's rough and i'm looking forward to you know when they finally do the next marvel movie or even the next black panther however they choose to move forward with that the tribute to him there's going to be a lot of tears in that theater so but, uh, you know, we, we like to move on and keep it light here. And so I think, you know, if this had happened back in the day, there'd be a lot of letters written in to Marvel Comics, to Marvel Studios. And so we're going to open up Willie Lubkin's Mailbag. <laughs>
All right, so uh, speaking of the mailbag, you know, we're usually dipping into the magic words section of Wizard, and we will get to that shortly, but we ourselves have reached a, I guess you'd call it a, a little bit of a milestone here, Michael. We are getting enough attention out there that we're finally getting trolled. Ooh, <laughs> very exciting. Yeah. We're in. We're like, we're celebrities that people are going after us now. I love it. <laughs> Fantastic. So we got a tweet recently from... A a gentleman named Ryan Voss, and uh, he called us out. He said, so are you guys consciously ripping off cartoonist kayfabe, or was it just a coincidence? So uh, for those of you who don't know, uh, when we put this show together, this was completely, you know, in a vacuum. I was like, I want to pay tribute to Wizard. It just feels like there's got to be more people out there that remember it, they love it, and that's obviously proving to be true. And so after we launched the show, we were doing a little research, and we found that there was a YouTube podcast, it's kind of a little bit of both, called Cartoonist Kayfabe with some cartoonists, some artists who have worked in the comic book industry and one of the things they do is they'll literally do a video where they go through every page of a Wizard magazine and they started about a year before us. But it's a very different vibe, it's a very different format, they're not 100% dedicated to Wizard and the history of Wizard like we are, that's just one facet. So I think it was just the, the choice of the phrase ripping off because <laughs> one of our loyal listeners kind of refuted uh, his claim. He's like, well, th that's why I was asking if it was a coincidence. So, but Ryan, we invited you to listen. If you're listening now, we hope you're enjoying the show. We're just having a little bit of fun. Like I say, we're excited that we could be called out. Yeah, no, totally. I mean, honestly, and until he even mentioned that, I still didn't know almost a year into this podcast that this cartoonist kayfabe existed and you know more power to them you know people are want to tell their stories or tell their perspectives on the same thing that's cool i'm, I'm good with it either way and you know we're, we're just happy there's other people out there talking about wizard too that's good news but you know there are people back in the day that also had a thing or two some words they wanted to exchange with the wizard editorial staff and so as luck would have it it'd been couple issues and it feels like the debate about iron man versus x-men had cooled off but somebody just poured gasoline on the fire so take it away michael yeah and this guy used more than 140 characters to do it <laughs> so uh he writes dear wizard doug may i call you doug you have admitted defeat too easily my friend you and i both know iron man is perfectly capable of destroying the gene jokes i mean x-men single-handedly don't worry about targeting systems not locking onto them or psychic power proof helmets check this out there's no need for a psychic proof helmet if you'll recall recent issues of iron man there need not be a body in the suit tony can control it remotely there's no mental presence to detect much less a brain to fry and there's no scent for logan to smell in a surprise attack a hollow suit immediately picks off Xavier, Jean, and Psylocke. The X-Men try to engage, but the suit is so high in the air, picking them off, his only problem might be Archangel. Tony has preset the self-destruct system. When Warren gets close, the suit explodes, taking Archangel with it. The X-Men are stunned momentarily by this no-Professor X to keep them sharp. 
at this moment, in comes Tony Stark in his big, bad, black and white armor with all guns blazing. Who needs targeting systems when you got visual contact and enough guns to blanket the area? Shellhead would be eating muty burgers five minutes later. David Wright, Columbus, Georgia. David is all in on this. That is a full scenario that you can totally see play out. I mean, that is so valuable uh, an insight here. So Doug, Goldstein is pulled out of retirement to respond once again. And the response from Doug. Hmm. You know, I never thought of sending, like, a whole mess of Iron Man suits against the X-Men all on remote control. I guess the X-Men would last more than two minutes, would they? Okay, I take it back. Tony Stark cannot only single-handedly kill all the X-Men with ease, but he doesn't even have to get his hands dirty. Cool! (laughs) I wonder if uh, Iron Man 3 read this scenario and was like, hey, we'll just do that at the end of Iron Man 3. A bunch (laughs) of Iron Man suits with nobody in them. Perfect, there you go. The only thing I find a little bit odd is like, is Iron Man really going to eat Mutie burgers five minutes later like so now we were saying that iron man is a cannibal as well it's like okay <laughs> maybe he's been driven mad by all the battles with the x-men over these letters <laughs> I, I guess so trying to absorb their power by eating them <laughs> All right, well, speaking of Iron Man 3, we'd like to talk about movies, so Michael, take us into... The Wave Riders Wayback For February of 19... 93. Just by looking over this list, this is a solid month of movies. All fantastic movies. So we're going to start off on February 3rd with one of my favorite childhood movies, Homeward Bound, The Incredible Journey. Now, Adam, can you name the three voice actors that voice the dogs? I can name two. I can... The cat... It was Sally Field, and one of the dogs is Michael J. Fox. I don't know who the Golden Retriever was. Who was that? So, Michael J. Fox played Chase, and uh, the Golden Retriever, I think it was, what's his name, who was the dad in Beethoven. Oh, really? Charles Groden? I no. think so. Let's, we gotta look that up. Homeward bound. Okay. Oh, here we go. Shadow was Don Amici. Ah, from Cocoon. Interesting. Yeah. Charles Grodin. (laughs) I thought it was, for some reason. You got Beethoven on the brain. We're talking dog movies. I guess so. Well, (laughs) Don Amici. Wow, that's a name I haven't heard in a long, long time. So, one of my favorite movie lines of all time that comes out of this movie, and I still recite it to this day. There's a line where Michael J. Fox's dog, Chase, says... I'm too pooped to poop. (laughs) And it is one of my favorite lines. I say it to Grace all the time. Like, I'm like, oh, man. She's like, what's up, Daddy? Oh, I'm just too pooped to poop. (laughs) 
I love that line. So we that add was... that to your pantheon of we... catchphrases for movies. We go in Sizzler. Oh, we go that... to poop to poop. <laughs> These are my, some of my top five right there. Right? So the next movie is uh, it's a little ironic because this movie was a monster of a movie. Like, And it was a, a relatively low-budget film. Is Groundhog Day on February 12th. This movie is one of those movies where you can pick it up today, watch it, and it still holds up. It's still hilarious. And because of 2020 and the coronavirus, there's been more of a resurgence of Groundhog Day references and memes that I've seen pop up over the last six months than I have in 10 years. Yeah, definitely. I mean, especially they even did a Super Bowl commercial, right? Yeah. So, I mean, it's totally back. It's just such like a classic now. Everybody loves this film. You know, the sad part about it of the behind the scenes though is that Harold Ramis you know directed it Bill Murray the star they are friends from Ghostbusters and everything else but unfortunately they really butted heads on the film and it ruined their friendship Really? I didn't know that. Yeah, up until when Harold Ramis was about to pass away, like, they, they finally kind of settled their differences, but it, it was like, for years and years, they just were not friends anymore. It's so sad. Wow, I didn't know that. One of the key things that I equate this movie with is, it's the only thing I've ever liked Chris Elliott in, period. <laughs> Not a Cabin Boy fan? No, God, no. Oh, God. And my wife is obsessed with Shit's Creek, and I can't watch it because I can't stand him in it. But this is the only movie that I actually like him in it, so it's kind of weird. But I didn't know that fact about him and Harold Ramis. I mean, that's surprising. That's a bummer. It's, I know. So this is really interesting. In that same month of February, Michael Douglas had a Double shot of Douglas. We had The Crying Game on February 19th and Falling Down on February 26th. I love Falling Down. It is Joel Schumacher's best film, I think. Yeah. By far. By far. I mean, so, some people, nostalgic favorite, you're going to say The Lost Boys. But just for quality of film and, like, an impactful film that has a message and stuff like that. Yeah, Falling Down. That McDonald's scene alone is oh, <laughs> very oh. cathartic for those of us who grew up in the era where there was not breakfast all day. Yeah. Or, <laughs> or even just the movie poster alone. It's just, it's kind of like an iconic poster. I love that movie. And I remember, I saw the crying game much older because it was a little bit too racy and risque for a 10 or 11 year old but i remember the controversy that that stirred up was like unprecedented at the time well yeah i mean it was it was definitely controversial and it was one of those movies where i didn't see it it doesn't really interest me that style of film anyway of course i only know the ace ventura pet detective parody of it mm -hmm. but it's it's one of those films where it's like once you know the twist it's like, you don't need to see it. But then also that that actor went on to be, he was actually the bad guy alien in Stargate. Yes. Yeah. So I was like, that was his only other major role that anybody knew for there. And everybody's like, that's the guy from the crying game. I'm like, mm -hmm. oh, okay. <laughs> Now, we've referenced this movie before, but it's interesting that it came up on our list now. Also, on February 26th is Army of Darkness, which I have admitted, passed on the show, I've never watched the movie yet, still to this day. So you're going to do 
it on your new podcast? I think it's going to come up at some point, yeah. But we shall see. I may have to watch it before then just to get myself prepared for it. I, I don't know. Maybe I'll do a live screening on YouTube <laughs> or that and, and watch it with others. Who knows? I mean, this is a movie where, I yeah, we mentioned it before because in the pages of Wizard, I feel like Andy Mangles has been teasing it for a long time and they keep saying it's being delayed, it's being delayed. And I never knew that about it, that it had a real troubled like production and release history. In fact, the comic book adaptation by Dark Horse came out before the movie. So yeah, really? Yeah. And then, yeah, so it was just, it was, there was something that went wrong with the distribution or I don't know what it was. So I'm sure there's some uh, fans out there who have every DVD version of it, the Screwhead edition and whatever else, and they've got all the behind the scenes. But I mean, it's one of those movies where for me, like, it's just, it's so hilarious. And yet, you know, we've talked about like, I, I've seen like the other Evil Dead films and they don't really appeal to me. But after this film, it's like, we love Bruce Campbell. Then we get, you know, the uh, Evil Dead TV series recently where he's back in the role and things like that. And there were so many comic books based oh, on... Uh, so the, many. Yeah, like this Army of Darkness version of Ash, you know, and Ash versus, you know, Marvel Zombies and all that kind of stuff. So at some point, there was talk of an Ash versus Jason versus Freddy Krueger movie. I remember that. I don't know if it was just like a fan stirring up the pot but i thought it was like a thing for a brief minute if the if the freddy versus jason movie was successful they were going to do a sequel where they were going to add ash into the film alas so now we've got our music for february of 93 and we're going to start with duran duran's self-titled featuring the ordinary world and come undone i know come undone i don't know if i know ordinary world though Like, these are the Duran Duran songs I know. Like, I don't know 80s Duran Duran that well. I mean, I know Hungry Like the Wolf. I've sung it at karaoke, and I've done that type of thing. But like, Oh, to be a fly on the wall to see you do that. Oh. <laughs> There's video. Oh, I gotta see that. I'll share it with you. But yeah, Ordinary World and Come Undone were like radio hits when I was just starting to get into popular music. And so I remember hearing them all the time, especially Come Undone. That's one of my favorites. Like, that, that's, that's a classy song. I dig it. So the next album that came out was Radiohead's Pablo Honey featuring the iconic Creep. And that came out on February 22nd. I like this album. It's not my favorite Radiohead album, but the song Creep is one of those songs that I can listen to it anytime, anywhere, in particular if I'm in a car and just like driving. It's a great song to just zone out to. I love that song. Yeah, I mean, it's definitely got a lot of levels, but like for, I don't get Radiohead. Like I know there's so beloved and i've just never connected with them but when i saw the title of this album pablo honey it made me think of the second jerky boys album yes Did that opening pablo, pablo honey come to florida <laughs> who is this pablo yeah come to florida <laughs> Oh, I, I don't know if that was the inspiration or not, but uh, if it was, that would crack me up. That would be fantastic. Honestly, like I wasn't a huge 
fan Radiohead till I just one day I sat down and listened to OK Computer and just kind of like let it play all the way through and it hit me and I really really connected to that album a lot that one I, I love that album some of the other albums I can take or leave but that one I love that the next one is Naughty by Nature 1993 featuring Hip Hop Hooray Ho Hey Ho <laughs> This was another one of those songs that was like, you couldn't turn on MTV or VH1 or the radio and not hear this song everywhere. It was literally everywhere you would look. Yeah, this and Whoop, There It Is. Those two songs, like, they're in the 90s, just inescapable for sure. But I don't know, like, I was trying to think, like, Naughty by Nature, is this a song that is out of their normal style? Because, like, to me, it feels like it's a very radio-friendly kind of song. It's very exciting. But on the cover of this album, like, they're holding a chainsaw? And, like, it's it's weird. Like, cause they, I don't think they quite had an NWA vibe to them. They weren't, like, super dangerous, but maybe they were going for it. I don't know. Well, I mean, like, this song and OPP are probably their big biggest songs that they've ever had come out and they they're very similar in their tone but i couldn't tell you really about a lot of their other songs how much they uh you know digress from that style who knows i have to like go back and listen to the summer some of their stuff but that and jump around was another big one at that time where it was just like you just heard that song and you're just kind of like your body just kept moving around no matter what <laughs> so the next album i didn't even know was an album for those of you guys who are of the 90s and if your ladies listen out there, Joey Lawrence dropped an album. Yes, that Joey Lawrence featuring Nothing My Love Can't Fix from February 23rd. I do not know that song. I mean, this is full, in effect, blossom Joey Lawrence era. He's shirtless with a vest on. You know what I'm saying? He's just got the long hair. He's doing his whole thing. Yeah, so it's just kind of hilarious that, you know, we talked about a Jackie Chan album, you know, a while back. And here we got Joey Lawrence. There were all these actors that were getting into the music game. This is one of those songs that you would think like, oh, yeah, like Adam knows this song. I don't know this song. This was not a radio hit. This one did not work out. Joey Lawrence was not a crossover star. I don't know this song at all. I don't even want to Google it because I know it's going to be one of those songs that if I hear it, it's going to burn into the, my brain and I'll never let it escape. It'll just be stuck there forever. Anyway, other than that, this is a very solid February for 1993, and that is our Wave Riders Wayback Machine. Adam, what do you got for us in our table of contents? All right. Well, this month, guess who's back? It's Venom. Yep. Venom, Carnage, and Spider-Man in a cover by Whitman. Hmm. This Whitman character. If you've listened to past episodes, we already revealed his identity, but I will tell you, in the next issue, Wizard spills the beans on who Whitman really was. So if you don't recall from back then, then I'll just save that surprise for the next episode for you. But yeah, this is a, a 
pretty dynamic cover. You know, you got Venom, like, upside down, twisting, tearing the wizard cloak. And we've talked about this in past amazing art features. To work the wizard cloak in, it's always like a scrap of the cloak. It and always I, is. Almost <laughs> every time. What are they doing? It's either the full cloak, like, draped all over the person, or this tiny scrap they've torn. And, and Spider-Man is making a physical move that I don't think is humanly possible. His legs are so far over his shoulders and head, it doesn't seem like it makes any sense. I don't know how he could reach like that, even <laughs> though he's Spider-Man. He's super double-jointed everywhere. Apparently, I mean, people took the McFarlane angles and really stretched it far, because that is quite a move there, Peter Parker. So... It's a pretty cool cover, though, I have to say. I mean, some of the covers that we've seen, it's more or less just like the characters posing as if they were taking a photograph in a way. This is a real dynamic, bifold cover, a lot going on, which is pretty cool. Yeah, it feels like this is where they start getting into their vibe in terms of covers and trying to make them dramatic. So we'll see how it goes moving forward. And we have more to say on Venom as we progress here. But first, Wizard News reports that ANIA Comics Association Association is a new publisher being formed from black-owned indie comics publishers. So they're referencing ACB Comics, Hype Comics, Up Comics, Dark Zulu Comics, Africa Rising Comics, and Omega 7 Comics. And their goal is to put out, quote, Afrocentric books with a positive black message. And these will include The Original Man, Heru, Son of Astar, Purge, Ebony Warrior, and Zwana, Son of Zulu. Now here Here's the thing. I did not know that these comics existed. Now, what's interesting is that they actually have, like, promotional art and one of the comics, Ebony Warrior, number one, comes with an insert card featuring Eric Larson art. And they actually thank him in here. They say thanks to Eric Larson for supporting the indie spirit. But the, the two issues I bought were Purge, number one, and Ebony Warrior, number one. Now, the art in Ebony Warrior is not fantastic, like proportion-wise. Uh, people are very strange. They got some interesting layouts and, and ideas. It's basically just about a guy who's a successful businessman who decides he wants to go clean up the streets. Okay. Puts on a costume, he goes, he does that. Now, Purge is another character who is also a successful businessman who decides to go clean up the streets. Um, <laughs> but the thing that's going on in his book is there's this female assassin who's under the control of this evil corporation, you know, this guy who's making her do his dirty work, and she is constantly kicking the main character, Purge, out of window. Windows. They're always fighting in a high rise, and she kicks them out of windows. <laughs> and so, yeah, it's funny. That's just like a running theme throughout. And eventually, he starts making jokes about it. But he's got like a truncheon, like Daredevil, where he chucks it, like bounces it off walls. He can shoot grappling hooks out of his wrist. He's he's got some cool stuff. But what they say in here, I thought it was just worth noting when they explain what they're all about. Okay, so it says Afrocentric and proud of it. It is a statement that is the guiding philosophy that provides the foundation for the ANIA line of comics. It's not meant to alienate or drive away white readers. Pro black does not mean anti-white. So what does Afrocentric mean? It is a perspective, a view of the world from the eyes of African Americans. ANIA books have this one key ingredient that separates our books from other publishers. It is the same ingredient African Americans have added to every artistic medium they have entered. That's very cool. I like they're not being confrontational about it. It's not a big 
statement in that type of way. They're saying, no, we just feel this is important and we want to do it. But the reason that I was so focused on this, the reason I was so interested in this, is that at this same time, in two issues, we're getting a major focus on Milestone, the Milestone imprint that is put out through DC Comics. And they have a similar focus the only difference is they had actual mainstream African-American comics professionals, writers and artists, people like Dwayne McDuffie and Dennis Cowan. But it's interesting that this ANIA comics beat Milestone to the punch by like a month. And of course, recently at the DC Fandom, they announced that the Milestone imprint is going to be relaunched in 2021. So this is all very timely that we just happened to land on this piece of news at this time. But we will be covering the milestone imprint in more detail like i said in just a few issues but i just thought that this was a great time in comics it was very exciting that they were trying to create this more inclusive type of universe you know that that allowed for representation in a way that maybe hadn't been done very well now did anybody ever buy ania and like absorb it into their imprint so that we could have these characters exist somewhere else or they just kind of went into the ether looking at their other letters section what they said was basically they were like image their whole model was creator own books that's why it was saying so many different comic companies coming together under the imprint because they were all self-publishing already and then they just said well let's create you know this banner that we operate under so i don't think so because it's like image where they all owned everything independently they were just cooperating and saying look we're united in this but if anybody knows different, definitely reach out to us on social media. Now, speaking of these new universes, Malibu Comics announces that they are launching an imprint called The Megaverse that will use comics as a launching pad for movies, TV, and video games. The first of which is called Stealth Force, and apparently that is already in development. It's going to be turned into a movie, so they say. But it appears, I mean, for everything we're seeing here, that this was the germ of the idea for the Ultraverse. And I think they just had a different name initially, and then when they refine the concept shortly here, not too far down the line, it becomes the Ultraverse. Then, as we'll see from their product, they do incorporate that quite a bit. Now, what I'll also mention just on that line, you know, as we're talking about the fandom news. So we have a very active Twitter follower who loves the show, Heroes Punching 2099. Recall it out to you. And uh, he put up a very interesting tweet because Milestone was coming back. He said to Marvel, he's like, you're up. And then he posted four Ultraverse comic covers. So he's like, this is the time to bring back another universe that has been left behind. And a lot of people seem to have fond memories of so we will see if that ever comes to pass but speaking of malibu they also are relaunching a title called dinosaurs for hire by tom mason <laughs> and i've never heard of this it was through eternity comics and then now that they bought eternity comics they're like oh yeah let's turn this into something and so the wizard has a four-page preview of dinosaurs for hire in this issue which is the first time they've done this but it becomes a very regular practice for wizard down the line and for major publishers but it's about these humanoid 
dinosaurs and they take shots at like the TMNT and Darkhawk and New Warriors. Like they are having a little bit of fun. So it's definitely kind of a tongue in cheek type story. I wonder if it's because of, you know, did Jurassic Park come out the year earlier or like the, the summer before? Well, no, 93. So it's coming out this same oh, year. Oh, it's coming out the same year. I wonder if they were like, ooh, let's strike while the iron is hot. We'll make <laughs> dinosaurs come to character. Interesting. Okay. They probably heard Spielberg was making it. Yeah, it's very likely. In collecting comics in the 90s, Pat McCallum announces he's going to stop writing this feature because he has too many responsibilities behind the scenes. Although he does admit in this process how much the fans influenced the content, stating that based on reader response, they canceled Hunk and Babe of the Month, which is why Michael hasn't been blushing on the mini episodes for quite a while. No way. Really? <laughs> Nobody liked it, apparently. They wrote in and said, what are you doing? But I will say, not too far ahead, it comes back. So it cracks me up that he says here, he's like, you told us, and we listened, we got rid of Hunk of the Month, and then they just bring it back. So <laughs> Wow. Interesting. They couldn't resist it. Guess not. They're like, oh, we gotta get that, that good, good, hunky stuff going on. Yeah. When it does come back, I will voice it with a vengeance on the mini episode. <laughs> now, there is a column that has been ongoing that we have been ignoring on the show by a guy named David Quinn and in my opinion it was just a bunch of like stream of consciousness ramblings I could never make sense of what he was trying to say oh kind of like how I talk <laughs> you make more sense to this guy <laughs> He apparently is the one who wrote the Faust comic, which was infamous for graphic depictions of sexual assault against women and then penis-chopping vengeance upon the perpetrators. So, like, it was like this real controversial book when it came out, and that being the case, Quinn mentions that he is weirded out that very young fans who are not his target audience come up to him at conventions having read his wizard column and adult-themed comics, which causes him to ponder, quote, It's nice to meet you. Does your your mother know you're hanging out with me <laughs> well at least he's like conscious of his yeah that's a weird weird comic i don't know yeah. if I can read it. that was one of the amazing art submissions you didn't recognize at one point you're like who is this character i don't know what this is and it, it was faust oh well there you go okay yeah. good <laughs> now i don't feel so big i'm not a psychopath <laughs> Bart Sears, you know, he is our brutes and babes teaching us how to draw comics. And this time around, he's teaching a lesson on, quote, proportion, proportion, proportion. It looks easy, but it's not. Which a few comics professionals from this era can attest to. Enough said. <laughs> yeah, no comment. <laughs> Now, an interview with John Ostrander called Steel Smashing Hands and Planet Tossing Ghosts covers his new writing job at Valiant. He's taking Magnus Robot Fighter in a new direction. It'll be this ongoing war storyline, as well as rebooting the Spectre at DC Comics. Now, he asked the rhetorical question, does the Spectre work better as a supporting character or occasional guest star than as the star of his own book? End quote. You know, basically he's saying because he has godlike powers could you ever really worry about him is there ever any concern for the specter so as our resident dc expert michael the specter i mean not long after this hal jordan becomes parallax and then eventually becomes the specter and that might be part of why they're saying that they're bringing the specter back the only time that i really really connected with that character is in kingdom come i do find that it is a little bit hard to 
connect with, so to speak. But I do think it's got a cool story to it. And the way they played it out in the Crisis on Infinite Earths series on uh, the CW, where Oliver Queen becomes the Spectre. Spoilers, everybody. Sorry. They really do a, a good job with that as well. Well, and it feels like he is the watcher, essentially, of the DC universe. But to me, it's kind of like he's that all-knowing character that kind of shows up and floating around. And then he's like telling everybody, okay, be wary of this or you need to worry about this because from what I understand his golden age roots he was like a character that would just exact very violent vengeance, vengeance upon yeah. criminals that do really weird trippy stuff to them yeah he and the phantom stranger are kind of like the watcher on the DC side they're kind of just a pop up here and there they know things about the future, they know things about the past, and they try to steer the narrative, I guess you could say. And I do like the idea of the character. I just don't think that it's one of those characters DC does not know what to do with them, you know? Yeah, I think the reason, you know, going off your theory that Hal Jordan becomes a Spectre is probably because this failed. <laughs> so they're like, well, nobody cares about this comic. Let's uh, let's get a new Spectre in there, make him interesting again. But speaking of the end, there's an article called The End of an Era, and it appears to be Wizards curmudgeonly editor Patrick Daniel O'Neill's take on the death of Superman storyline. There's a big double-page spread, and it's Superman's body just laid out dead in rubble but instead it turns into yet another rant about gimmick comic books culminating in him targeting superman 75's black polybag of quote goo gaws <laughs> and this is just so interesting because the wizard staff is in such a weird position because they're always criticizing gimmicks they don't like poly bags they don't like this or that but they're making their money by reporting on the gimmicks and playing into the hype that they create so it's always a, a weird back and forth that they're involved in and yet in the not too distant future they're sending out poly bags with AOL discs in them? Yes, indeed. Yeah, they, they definitely don't shy away from their own gimmicks while criticizing them, so... really funny, though, like, the difference in some of the people that work at, or writing these articles, like, some of them are such curmudgeons about certain things and then they're super high on other things i feel like the reason is in these early days it feels like they had a single editorial voice they had patrick daniel o'neill is writing a lot of these articles as does pat mccallum you know you got tom palmer talking about indie books and all those things and then they have like freelancers coming in and doing random articles here and there so i feel like yeah there's one opinion that kind of prevails but uh you know on on the other side of things here, though, I can hear past guest Chris Sheehan's pointy ears perking up because next it's ElfQuest, the Wendy and Richard Peeney interview. So we heard Chris sing the praises of ElfQuest and how it got him into comics. You've never read them, though, Michael, right? I don't know. I, I recognize the name ElfQuest. Maybe just because of this show. But no, I've never read an issue and I wouldn't even know where to look for it. Yeah, and I, I've thumbed through a few issues in the past and it's just not my cup of tea. I mean, Wendy Peeney's art style is very distinctive, but it also is a roadblock for me that says, ah, just, ah, I'm not going to be connected to a fantasy world like this. But the creative team, who are also a married couple, in this article are discussing how at this time they're trying to expand the brand recognition of ElfQuest. But not 
not necessarily to sell millions of copies like Todd McFarlane did with Spider-Man and the hot artists after him. They say their fan base is actually very protective of their characters. And when they did a new book called The New Blood, which is like an anthology book of new creators that they invite, John Byrne and others, you know, were telling these stories and the readers were up in arms. They couldn't believe it. And so it's one of those things where John Byrne actually purposely wrote a story to infuriate their fans. So they're like, yeah, go for it. Let's shake it up. But what I thought was really interesting is in addition to releasing these other books in their ElfQuest line, they also have a new book called Jink that stars an ElfQuest character descendant thousands of years in the future. So it's like ElfQuest 2099. Oh my goodness. It is interesting. It's like it's just like a sci-fi book. And they said they're even considering writing ElfQuest children's books because theirs are more like later teens sex and violence in their main series. You know, they're like, it's really not for kids but it could turn into dr seuss type books and kids could know elf quest 30 years from now well they don't (laughs) (laughs) newsflash the future was not kind to elf quest so there was a follow-up to that neil adams interview we had recently regarding continuity comics because this is an interview with his daughter and business partner christine adams and they revealed that they actually put all their books on hiatus now you might recall they already said they were really late in releasing their books because they focused on the quality and if it wasn't good enough they weren't going to release it but the reason was neil adams apparently was self-financing this company like it was a hundred percent him and his money but they decided they got wise they looked at all the other business models and valiant and whoever else and decided they were going to get investors who could fund a relaunch and promotion of their comic book world and that is all leading to a, a major crossover event called death watch 2000 which they are spending forty thousand dollars to advertise as part of that the big news is that neil adams is going to produce a one-shot comic called she bat which is the first comic neil adams has penciled and inked since superman versus muhammad ali that is a long time man he does do that where he goes on certain extended hiatus but i don't know i mean to come back with a character named she bat like <laughs> uh, come on neil you're a pretty crafty guy i would come up with something a little bit more distanced from the Batman that you did a run for forever. And I mean, you've done a million Batgirl. I have a Batgirl right behind me that you did. I don't know. Yeah, it just, it feels like also at this time, they probably thought that was a big like publicity stunt and people would be excited. But people were just not into the legends of comic books at this time. It was literally like, who's the hot new artist with a crazy extreme style? That's what we want. We don't want perfect proportions. We don't want, classically trained artist you know it's just like neil adams who okay whatever and i think wizard actually plays a big part in maybe educating this younger generation as to who he was and his generation of artists what their impact was but the whole deal about this is the stores have to order 30 comics so that's five copies of each of these new continuity titles so they have six titles five copies each and when you order 30 comics you get one copy of shebat so it becomes this instant collection I did not look up what that is going for on eBay these days, but... I'm going to look it up right now, because I'm fascinated. Neil Adams, Shebat. Let's see. Okay, here. Number one is going for $19.99, but number two... 99 cents. Oh. So only one of them was unique and collectible. Okay, got yeah, it. Yeah. 
And finally here, we talked about it, Dripping with Venom is an interview with Spider-Man writer Dave Michelini regarding how the evolution of Venom from Psycho Killer to Dark Hero in his Lethal Protector miniseries happened. That he just became so popular. People love Venom. He's guest starring in everybody's books. He's the, the villainous Wolverine. But ultimately, because of that popularity, he just had to get his own title. And Michelini says he wanted to keep Venom as a villain. But since it was just inevitable that he was going to get launched in a solo outing, he might as well be the one who continues writing the character. Uh, and he, he defends Eddie Brock, though, by saying Eddie wasn't a serial killer before he became Venom. He just became obsessed with killing one person that he thought wronged him, Spider-Man, and then anyone who got in the way just kind of paid the price. I don't know if that's 100% true in how he was written in other places, in other comics, because like there was like an Avengers comic where he was like this mastermind trying to, you know, lead this revolt in a prison and stuff, and it wasn't about Spider-Man in that, but maybe, you know, if he wants to say, I gotta get out of here so I can kill Spider-Man, so maybe in that roundabout way. I always thought that... Eddie Brock had been like beaten down by the world and he was like a two-time loser so to speak and then once once he becomes fused with the symbiote any of his latent meanness or anger or psychotic tendencies were brought to the surface because of Venom and that's when his evil shifted I don't like Eddie Brock Venom as a anti-hero I like him as a as a straight up villain because there's not a lot of Spider-Man villains that are really huge, huge threats to him. Whereas I always felt like Venom, Dr. Octopus, and Green Goblin were like his big three villains. Because they really made him challenged. And to make him an anti-hero takes away one of Spider-Man's foils. Yeah, for sure. And like, and to your point there, you know, Michelini says, quote, he's a victim of really of circumstance and his own upbringing. You can pity him. You can feel for him. Anyone who feels for Carnage is sick. <laughs> so he's, he's in the vein. He's just like, look, Venom, if we were going to do it, he does have a way to turn that character. But yeah, Carnage, no, he was a psycho. He, now he's a psycho with a symbiote, and he's uh, killing a lot of people. But in the mix also, I found interesting is that he said artist Mark Bagley had to tone down the horrific look of Venom that he had been taking on from other artists, specifically Eric Larson's, like, exaggerated giant jaws, everything just so disgusting. And they said, we're going to take it back to basics, because he said when Todd McFarlane was drawing him, he was just a buff guy in a black suit and had some sharp teeth, but they weren't out of control. So, yeah, I thought that was interesting. Interesting. There's like, yep, go back to the original Venom now so people can get behind him and be excited. I, I would agree with that. And they still do statues of it where it's like this super exaggerated jawline with slobbery goo coming out of the mouth. And then all of a sudden it like kind of went back to like a more normal sized head and so on and so forth. And I can see why they did that. That makes sense. Yeah, and the last thing I'll just say about this is, so in the Venom Lethal Protector series, which a lot of people bought this book, I don't know how many people opened it and read it, but a lot of people know this red, kind of reflective cover with Venom on it. It's very iconic. But it says here, Michelini has created a fictional below-ground section of the city by the bay, which is where Venom is now operating. It's where Eddie Brock was born, apparently. And he says, similar to the real-life 
life, old Seattle used to good effect in the pages of Green Arrow a few years back. These homeless people have built a society sort of like the Beauty and the Beast TV series, the Society of Outcasts Underground. So I'm like, wait, 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 wait. So, so none of this is original. Like, you stole it from Green Arrow and the Beauty and the Beast TV series. <laughs> okay, just admit it. Just throw it out there. That's fine. Thanks for being totally transparent there, Dave Michelini. People liked it. Good for them. But now, I think it's time, Michael, that we check out Heroes in Motion. Mangles reports that the X-Men cartoon premiere was delayed due to poor animation by the Korean studio AKOM, which had to retake certain scenes. Apparently, Magneto was animated without his shirt, and Jubilee's fireworks looked X-rated. Interesting. Hmm. In the meantime, they ran episodes of the late 80s Mighty Mouse cartoon, which had a controversial episode where Mighty Mouse snorted a flower and got enhanced superpowers. Hmm. Interesting. <laughs> Mangles predicts that these production issues may cause Fox to not renew X-Men for a second season. Well, obviously that was not the case, but I do remember that there was like this kind of moment during the Fox Saturday mornings where all of a sudden like Mighty Mouse appeared and X-Men wasn't on for a stint of time. That was weird. I didn't know that this was the case. Yeah, and what's really interesting too is that they said they retook those shots that didn't work and then they were going to rebroadcast future episodes with the correct animation, but they mention in here that the home video release apparently is already in production so it will not have the corrected animation so if you have those first few x-men videos apparently you're seeing the troubled animation so i'm gonna have to take a look at my videos and see if i spot that shirtless magneto yeah seriously i'm interested hey buff magneto hey mags how's it going <laughs> all right it's reported that Stan Lee is developing a Daredevil TV series with Larimer Television that is ready to produce a pilot. Of course, we didn't actually get a Daredevil series until the incredibly popular Netflix production a few years ago, which I just saw an article the other day that the statute of limitations for when they can't use Daredevil again is coming up in around january or february of 2021 that they can start using daredevil again in the marvel cinematic universe so Ooh. fingers crossed charlie cox keeps his job i really hope so yeah that'd be great news of other marvel movie projects that, that mangle states never seem to actually get off the ground a new writer has been brought in on a wesley snipes black panther film delaying any production until 1994. Wes Craven is interested in making a Doctor Strange film. John Milius, who wrote and produced Conan the Barbarian, wants to do an animated Thor film. That's kind of cool. That feels like that, that would have been like a Ralph Bakshi production, like they would have teamed up. Seriously, absolutely. Okay, this is really wild. Oliver Stone wants to adapt the Electra assassin graphic novel. The director of Rambo wants to make Ghost Rider a film. And last but not least, LL Cool J wants to play Blade in a movie, which eventually, as we all know, 
goes to Wesley Snipes because he never got to make his Black Panther. Very, very interesting stuff. Yeah, definitely. LL Cool J is Blade. That would have been, wow. <laughs> I mean, he gets I, into the movies eventually, but... He does, but I just feel like when you look at Wesley Snipes, especially in the first Blade movie, though he's strong, he's still lean and he's agile and fast. LL Cool J, I always picture him as much more muscular and broad. Mm-hmm. And to do some of those sword moves alone might have been a little bit tricky to make it look cool and look right with... Hello, Cool J, where, where it looks great with Wesley Snipes. Yeah, I mean, Wesley Snipes was actually a martial artist and a dancer, so I right. mean, he had, like, the physicality ready to go, yeah. yeah. It's worth noting that Richard Donner is reported to being connected with an X-Men movie, which his wife, Lauren Schuler Donner, ultimately does produce in 2000. While Gail Ann Hurd is involved in production of a Hulk film, and she eventually produces both the Ang Lee film as well as the Marvel Studios version with Ed Norton. She must have had some real good rights on that Hulk character to get hanging on, right? Yeah, in production for so long. So long. Unbelievable. Several issues back, it was reported that Sean Young who lost the role of Vicky Vale in 1989's Batman film and unsuccessfully attempted to be cast as Catwoman in Batman Returns, was starring in a female vigilante superhero film called Black Cat from the same producers as the Bat films. But Michael Uslan states, don't believe everything you've read. Sorry, Sean, you lose yet again. But speaking of the Cape Crusader, Batman the Animated Series is slated to get a direct-to-video full-length feature for Christmas 1993. Of course, we all know this becomes the famous Batman Mask of the Phantasm, and it is also released to theaters before it goes to home video release. As of this recording, this movie is available to stream on Netflix. If you haven't seen Batman Mask of the Phantasm, it is probably one of the best animated or cinematic stories of Batman ever done. I love this film. I wish they could adapt it into a feature because it is just so good. It gives a very interesting villain slash, you know, antagonist. Um, It gives a really cool backstory for the Joker. It's a very, very well done animated film, and it's something that everyone should see. So a third live-action Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles is about to be released, and Andy Mangles promises a set visit with photos in a future issue. He also reveals that the subtitle of the film is A Feudal Fable, due to the story being set in feudal Japan. As any 90s kid knows, that disappointing turtle flick came to theaters and home video with the title Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles 3 with no subtitle. Yeah, but I was still surprised to read that. It makes sense, like it fits, but at the same time, no kid would have been able to pronounce feudal. No, definitely not. <laughs> and and ask, a, ask a kid, hey mom, what does feudal mean? Like, what does that mean? It'll, it wouldn't make any sense. Finally, a small mention of a film starring The Shadow is in production, and one year later, a 12-year-old boy named Adam will become completely obsessed with this movie. 
Oh, can't wait. I'm actually staring at a wall of shadow figures and other memorabilia from the film right in front of me. Every time we record, it's I'm in my shadow corner. <laughs> I know you've done it on Sequel Quest. It is a very good movie. I do like that movie a lot. I think it was one of those films that just came out way ahead of its time, kind of like when we did Dick Tracy, and people just didn't get it. They just weren't ready for like the humor. There's a humorous tone to it that's mixed into the action, and I can agree that it's maybe a little uneven in parts but it's a very entertaining film i know a lot of people have come to it late and said oh this is a fun movie it is a fun movie okay so that is our heroes in motion adam what do you got for us oh well now it's time to look at guy gardner's gimmicks a go-go So, as we were talking about a little bit earlier, Wizard actually gets called out by a reader for criticizing comics publishers for their gimmick polybag releases, but then listing the same issue of those comics with different prices based on the polybag being intact. Now, Wizard responds to this by saying that they have to reflect the actual market prices, whether or not they agree with the practice of polybags adding value to the books. They're like, they just are selling in stores for more money if they are still in the poly bags. But like Michael mentioned, Wizard just keeps releasing their own magazine in a poly bag with insert cards every month. You know, so it's a, it's a real hot button issue. There's a little bit of hypocrisy here, but they kind of talk about it. It's like, well, it's, it's a necessity. We have to do it because, you know, it keeps all the goodies we're giving you intact. But the, the real value is the magazine itself. There's actually even somebody who writes in that says, I am appalled that you have raised your prices and you're trying to turn Wizard Magazine into a collectible in and of itself because I go to the comic shop and back issues are selling for twice the cover price you know <laughs> and they're like oh well we're flattered that wasn't our intention but uh, obviously there's more value than you're placing on it for being just a price guide I wonder if it's just probably because of like the exclusive covers they got a lot of times that probably makes it why it was a little more valuable the back issues and and you know as we mentioned early early on the imprint only could do so many books in the very very beginning that they probably had a low run of them, that they might be a little bit more valuable. And that's actually very true, yeah, because they the, at this time, as we've reported recently, they were selling out all over the place. And, and in fact, the guy who wrote this letter is like, they're hard to get a hold of. So yeah, Wizard was definitely flying off the shelves. Also in the mix here, we talked a little bit about Venom. Well, there is uh, Amazing Spider-Man number 375 is being released with a gold, quote, holographics cover. I love it they just keep coming up with new names for their gimmick covers. But this one, if you'll recall, is basically just Spider-Man and Venom charging each other. And then there's like basically a, a gold general color and then these kind of rainbow spider webs that appear. Hologram spider webs as you turn the book in the in the light. But yeah, holographics. Now you know. <laughs> and finally here, there, there's a lot of good stuff in Magic Words this month. There's just people with some really interesting reports, I guess you would say. So this guy writes in and he says, Do Dear Wizard, when Shadowhawk number one was shipped, I freaked out. It is such a great cover that I had to buy multiple copies, six to be exact. Anyway, that night when I sat down to read my comics, the first one I picked up was Shadowhawk number one. So I opened the cover. The first thing I saw was another cover, but of the Knights of Pendragon number four? Astonished, I flipped another page and out of nowhere came the Moon Knight special number one story from pages nine to forty. And we all know Moon Knight is lame. 
followed by the back cover of Knights of Pet Dragon and Shadowhawk. When I picked up the rest of my Shadowhawk number ones, I found out I had three error copies in all. I had a very good friend of mine call Malibu Press. The book, like all image books, was printed at Ronald's in Quebec. It seems they printed 1,000 errors and they thought they withheld them all, but after they were shipped out, they counted again. This time, they only counted 993, meaning that seven got out into the public. What I would like to know is, what value does this error book have, if any? Michelangelo, Ianero, Montreal, Quebec, Canada. Now, wizard, listen to this. Opening line. Bull. <laughs> Period. I called Ronald's on 11-25-92 and asked about this little Shadowhawk thing. What that book is, is a, quote, packer book. Something that's thrown together really quickly and is used to see how many copies of a title can fit in a box. It is not an error that they have tried to hold back. <laughs> oh, sneaky. Yeah, I just thought that was hilarious. He's like, hey, I, I got an error copy. It's worth a lot of money. Bull. <laughs> yeah. Okay, first of all, if it was worth money, where are you selling it in 93? eBay doesn't exist, pal. Well, good luck. Try to convince your local comic shop to trade you for some hologram cards or yeah, something. Sure. Goodness gracious, that's pretty funny. But uh, enough of that. Let's get into... Robin Todd's Hype Machine, baby. Here we go. So, first, Wizard News reports Image is officially splitting from Malibu Comics after one year as their publisher. I can't say I'm surprised because Image is the bigger name at this point, and Malibu Comics is kind of like an afterthought. And as we all know, Image goes on and still remains to be the number one independent comic in the world. Yeah, exactly. And they, they basically just say the reason is that Image wanted to be in total control of their books. So, I mean, and, and honestly, Malibu wasn't doing their job because if you recall, there was an interview with the Image founders and then the Malibu execs. And they said, well, our job is to get all the comics out on time. We're just helping them get them through the pipeline. And obviously, Image is notoriously famous for having their books ship late so malibu did not hold up their end of the bargain so this issue rob is only mentioned four times but todd is mentioned seven times and this is the first time in several issues that todd actually surpasses in the mentions and so now our tally goes to Rob is at 104, but Todd is he's now at 99, so they're only five apart. I know, but he's so close to breaking 100 like Rob did, and he just didn't quite get over the hurdle there. And, and again, please, those of you who are listening, even our friend the troll who gave us a hard time, give Adam a lot of credit. He has counted their names so many times in so many books. <laughs> That it's just unprecedented. I give him a lot of credit. All right. Well, now let's uh, start flipping through Gambit's deck of cards. (laughs) 
So, first of all, the crystal ball feature opens stating that, quote, comics have gained a whole new audience from people who formerly collected only sports cards, which is actually acting as a counterpoint to our past discussion about sports fans and comics fans not mixing, the whole super pro situation. But it's stated that some people think these new collectors will just buy the cards and not read the comics that inspired them. But as many of our guests have told us, it was a great gateway to the hobby for a lot of people. Absolutely, yeah. We've heard that several times. So I think that was just some of the snobby comics readers. I've been reading for like 10 years and now these guys think they know everything about comics, which, you know, we all have a little bit of that but <laughs> but I, I think it did actually work very well to uh, expand the reach of comics now skybox is revealing how limited the number of boxes being produced are of their trading card series this is you know they're obviously trying to add even more to the collectability frenzy so listen to this for example marvel masterpieces were shipped only in a quantity of 17,500 cases filled with 20 individually numbered boxes for a total of only 350,000 boxes in circulation. So it's kind of a thing where they were limiting, so now they really are collectible, and the value you're going to see in the Wizard card price guide, you know, that's true. I mean, that, that's a real deal. Now, the same is being done for the Death of Superman cards, which are just being released at this time, but they're set out in a quantity of only 8,000 cases and just 10 numbered boxes. Only 80,000 boxes total of Death of Superman cards were ever released. That is crazy, like, that they were so dedicated to, like, oh, instant collectible, right here, guys. It's funny, like, it makes it so much harder for the fan to get a complete set. Well, and because of that, because the packs themselves are limited, that makes the Spectra chase cards that are inside even more valuable, and they are listed in this price guide, this issue, $90 for all four of the Death of Superman Spectra chase cards. Wow. So, I mean, just instantly they come out, and guess what? Because the numbers tell you you can't get them, they're worth 90 bucks if you somehow got a hold of them. So that is punishing to some who really want to have that full set, Michael. So why don't you take us into... Punisher's Price Guide. The Wizard Market Watch feature reports that Superman 75 featuring the death of Superman as covered in our recent special episode sold an estimated 2.5 to 3 million copies and was already selling for $35 to $40 a copy at retail due to the media coverage. Wizard is very critical of this overhyped event allowing store owners to sell to new customers who were raked over the coals as you will they claim that anyone who falls for all the overhype deserves a slap in the face to wake them up (laughs) they're ballsy when it comes to this they are and that in the future of this book will only sell for a whopping nine clams (laughs) <laughs> Are you doing your calculations over there? I was trying to do a clam noise, but it didn't come off very well. It failed miserably. Very disturbing to those who don't like ASMR. That's for sure. It's time to test that theory. Just a reminder, we have three ratings for this feature, with prices being pulled from Wizard Price Guide. A Firestar is a book that has gone 
up in value significantly. A firestorm is equal to its 90s value, and a burnout book has gone down significantly in value. All right, Michael. So here's the really interesting thing about this. The Wizard Price Guide lists the Black Polybag Superman number 75 at $24. But currently on eBay, you can get a copy of the Polybagged Edition for $10 to $12. So yeah, that uh, supply and demand thing didn't work in its favor in terms of value. Sorry, Polybagged Superman number 75, but Wizard predicted your doomsday and your fate as a burnout. And by the way, for those of you who have given us your great feedback, we're glad that so many of you found us through our Superman Tribute Edition special episode. I know a lot of people were very interested in that. You had a lot to say on social media. So we welcome you and glad that we could bring back some memories for you talking about that event. Yeah, no, that was that was a lot of fun, that one. I really enjoyed doing that episode. It was cool. And, and again, yes, thank you for joining us and listening and checking out our show. So, Adam, what are we talking about next? Ooh, it's time to get excited, because we're going to rev up Robin's Reading Rainbow. So hot books this month include Darker Image, which was hyped with like a full cover a few issues back, but is only now being released. Again, image delays. Death, The High Cost of Living, featuring Morpheus from Sandman's sister. And Spawn number nine, not hyped in any way, just a small footnote in other books being released. Spawn number nine was the first appearance of Angela, who was about to explode in popularity and uh, eventually become the subject of a lawsuit between Neil Gaiman and Todd McFarlane. Is Angela the one that was like the female villain in the movie? Uh, no. So in the movie, her name was Priest. She was supposed to be Chapel, but Chapel belonged to Rob Liefeld, so McFarlane couldn't use Chapel in his movie. It's very confusing when you have the individual ownership, but Angela does have a cameo in Spawn. She has a non-speaking part, but there's a woman in a green dress with long red hair and she has the spawn angela earrings and she's walking through the party scene before he crashes through the skylight but then there was the book that we're discussing today featuring michael's best buddies the fantastic four number 374 though i forgot the flame on i do like the fantastic four very much so now the cover to this issue is iconic so i bought it off the rack 1993 so when i saw it come up i was like oh i can't believe it we're finally up to this issue now it boasts the new Fantastic Four versus the Fantastic Four. And then at the very bottom, suddenly, the Secret Defenders. Now, it's worth mentioning that on the back of the fold-out cover poster, there's actually a big ad for the Secret Defenders comic book, which was about to launch way back when, when I was like, oh, the new Fantastic Four, this is so cool that they are doing that. But I learned in rereading the issue that this new Fantastic Four, this is not the first time they had been assembled. It actually had been done like three years before in 1990 when Walt Simonson was writing Fantastic Four and Art Adams was the artist. And I, I, Art Adams is an artist I'm not familiar with. If anybody's been listening to Rob Liefeld's Observations podcast, he talks about how big 
an influence Art Adams was on all the image guys. And uh, he, he's just someone I'm not super familiar with. I think I've seen a few posters of his work, but I don't think I ever had read any books. So on Comixology, I picked up uh, Fantastic Four 347 to 349, which is this storyline where these four are assembled, which are Hulk, Wolverine, Ghost Rider, and Spider-Man. That is the, quote, new Fantastic Four. Basically, what's happening in that storyline is there's this rogue scroll woman who infiltrates, impersonates, and incapacitates the Fantastic Four, and then in the form of Sue Storm, she's telling all these heroes that have been assembled that the Fantastic Four are dead, and they need to help her catch the alien assassins who are at the center of the Earth and unleashing giant monsters to protect themselves. And of course, it's all revealed to be a lie, and the real Fantastic Four returned, and they catch this traitor's scroll and send her off with her scroll superiors. So it's a real fun story. In fact, at the very last issue, they talk about the featuring the most self-indulgent cameo or something of all time, and it shows the Punisher's chest. And literally on the last page, he's flying a jet towards this island that they're on. And then he's just like, ah, looks like there's no problem here. And then he just takes <laughs> off. <laughs> like, what? Oh, God. Anything to sell a book, right? It's like, you didn't have enough guest stars, you gotta think, you gotta sell the Punisher to people. That's pretty funny. But what did you get out of this issue, Michael? So, my first thought, really, is like, it's always one of those things where they're trying so hard to keep a book going. So, like, hey, let's change up the Fantastic Four and add, you know, some new characters to it, or, you know, some other super popular characters. So my first thought was, I actually really do like the art of the book. It looks really, really nice. It's bright. It does have that same kind of Fantastic Four feel, where the colors are very vibrant. I don't really like Sue Storm's, you know, bikini throughout the whole thing. It doesn't really make any sense. But she's got the four for her boob window. Yeah. You know, it's, the four is cut out, and you're just like, oh, no. <laughs> So I'm like, she's already invisible. Why does she need to be naked as well? Now, I did a little research into that, Michael. Back during the recent Infinity War issues, she had been possessed or battling this entity that was inside her mind after like all these years that she had battled like way back when called Malice. Because there was an issue where she, they, it's a very famous issue also, where she's in this kind of like bondage gear with spikes and she's raising her fist to the sky and she's been taken over and so what was happening here is like this is the beginnings of that that's why she changed her outfit that's why she's a little bit more angry and like quick to yell at everybody in this book mm -hmm. because she's got this entity inside of her that's gonna play out later on really so I don't know if I've ever told you this. I'm a huge, huge fan of the Inhumans, in particular Medusa. I love the Medusa character. And I was so glad when I saw them pop up in this story. Like, I was very, very excited about it. They really threw a lot of characters into this issue. So you've got, like, oh, yeah. you know, the Inhumans, like I just said. Doctor Doom shows up. The Fantastic Four. You got, you know, Spider-Man, Hulk. Ghost Rider and Wolverine, like the Watchers are in this. Like, it's just like, holy yeah. cow, everything is in this story. It's very, very interesting that it go. you know, Doctor Strange is here and, and he's sort of translucent a lot of times, which is kind of strange. A lot of the books we've read, sometimes they haven't really captivated me that much. But this one, 
it started off good pace and it just ramps up to straight up action for several pages for the back of the book and i liked it i thought it was pretty cool what, what about you yeah i enjoyed it a lot you know it's, it's one of those things i always like to say if if i could pick up a single issue and still feel like i know what's going on and i think they do a pretty good job of recapping everything that had gone on before because like in the previous issue and a couple issues before the human torch accidentally burned down empire state university by going supernova during an attack you know so it was an accident but he was trying to save his own life but now he's on the run as a fugitive and they're sending like silver sable and her wild pack are out to get him and all this stuff in the previous issue and what happens is spider-man is saying oh well you know johnny's a friend i'm sure there's more to this than we're seeing so he goes and reassembles that previous fantastic four group he was a part of when they thought fantastic four were dead and he's like hey we gotta go help johnny you know it's like let's go catch him before he gets into trouble but then it's funny because when they finally get there all of a sudden like the hulk gets really surly and he decides he's just gonna pound him and it's like oh, wait a minute no 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 you know like we're supposed to be helping him so then the real fantastic four show up and then yeah there's this big brawl and all of that but all of that is interesting and fun it's what you want out of a comic book especially in 93 when we're, we're 11 and we're like oh yeah this is cool but to me the most interesting part is also the previous issue the reason like the Fantastic Four weren't there initially to help Johnny they were on this like mission fighting a rogue watcher named Aaron and when he's defeated Dr. Doom shows up and he siphons off his energy just like he did to Galactus remember in Secret Wars yes when he's like when he's powering himself up he does that to this watcher this power he takes the power cosmic from him and makes a new suit of armor and so I'm sure that's going to play out in like the next issue but he's all over this like getting his new armor made charging it up but the armor you know aside from the fact that he's you know, wearing the green cloak looks a lot like the Doom 2099 armor and I was like is there any attempt at all to say like maybe this is the Doom who traveled to the future you know and so as I've been covering that on the mini episodes I got all excited I was like oh cool that is kind of cool now the one thing that I would have liked to see is for the new Fantastic Four to have matching uniforms. <laughs> That's one of the things that, like, you know, a lot of these superhero teams, especially like even the X-Men, early on, they all had similar colors and, and styles, but then as time went on, they gave each character kind of more individual look, whereas the Fantastic Four have always stayed like they match some way or another. And I would have liked to see them do a matching sort of a thing in this book, because in a book that's coming out right now called Empire... Wolverine and Spider-Man have joined the Fantastic Four and their suits match the rest of the Fantastic Four, which is pretty cool. Uh, well, yeah, I guess if they had stuck together for more than one issue, maybe they would have. I, but I can imagine, like, some storyline, like, their clothes get destroyed by a security system in the Baxter building. I think at this time it was Four Freedoms Plaza. Uh, but either way... <laughs> How like... do you know this? How do you know this? <laughs> I know too many things. Um, <laughs> but but and then if their clothes got destroyed, then maybe, yeah, they would have to create out of unstable molecules a matching uniform set, and that would just be a joke that they played off. But Tom DeFalco apparently did not come up with that concept, so if we were able to go back in time, we could have told them such things. Yeah, we should have. Yeah, but overall, it's what you want from a Marvel comic, I guess is how I feel about it. You want some action, you want some excitement. Now, for anybody that was reading Fantastic Four at the time, 
time, or at least saw Fantastic Four books, there is one lasting effect from this issue, and that is when they get into the brawl, Thing takes on Wolverine, and Wolverine slashes his face... And so he scars the thing's rocky face. And for the next, like, I think it lasts like 10 or 12 issues, the thing wears a mask like he's got a helmet on. And that's like his new look for quite a while. It's almost like, you know, Ben Grimm is Jason Voorhees for all that time. So I just think it's really interesting. It's like, I was like, oh, okay, this is a kind of a one and done deal and sold, you know, a lot of issues, whatever. But it's like, no, they actually like, built something into the story that would carry on through. Like, this was a pivotal issue. If you wanted to know, wait, why is the thing wearing a helmet these days? Mm, very interesting. But uh, overall, I have uh, just one question for you. Would you read more? Would you not read more? Ah, don't worry about that. Johnny Storm, your buddy, guilty or not guilty, Michael? Is he listening right now? <laughs> uh, yeah. Can I plead the fifth? Uh, no, I, I don't know. I, I honestly, I think he was guilty, right? Wasn't he guilty? Well, I mean, he overreacted, I guess you could say. He did burn down an entire university. Uh, the question is, does he need to go to jail? I mean, uh, I don't know. I mean, it's. I would say you got to go back to the Uncle Ben line to Spider-Man is, you know, with great power comes great responsibility. And if you can't control that responsibility, that power, you should be penalized for your mistakes. And he did destroy you know, millions and millions of dollars worth of property, so maybe he needed, you know, do a little hard time. Now, there is one more cameo in this issue, and that is Matt Murdock, not Daredevil. There's actually a shadow that looks like Daredevil at one time when he's walking in past a wall, but Matt Murdock is who they have hired. Sue Storm is yelling at him. She's like, you have all the available financial assets of the Fantastic Four. You just get Johnny out of this legal jam. That's your job, you know? <laughs> so I thought it was interesting. I mean, like, literally, Literally, it has packed everybody they could into this issue. And yeah, to me, I guess like it, it, I worry if you put Johnny Storm in prison, we already know he's got a temper and it's going to end up like El Diablo from Suicide Squad. Yeah, seriously. He's going to burn the whole yard, you know? <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, it's probably better. They just let, let him off here. Yeah, make him do some community service. He could do some controlled burning to stop forest fires or something. I don't know. <laughs> Very big out here in the desert where we have to worry about such things that is true well that was that was a fun little read though i'm glad we, we haven't done that in a while so I, I enjoyed that that was good yeah well you know and as i'm speaking to you michael you know I've, I've really enjoyed just the two of us getting back together you know we always love our guests but it's fun just to have a chance to relax a little bit and just uh do it our way and uh oh wait what's what's this <sighs> we're just talking about doom 2099 he's he's appearing in my office oh no what uh okay i guess i'm doing the outro then guys um so adam i think has been pulled into the year 2099 and uh yeah i guess we have to stay tuned to see what happens but uh until next time folks keep your books bagged and boarded This has been a presentation of the Retro Network.